I don't know what is normality. Can you explain me what is normality? Because that reality that is normal for you is not anymore normal for me. Welcome to the Failover Plan Podcast. I'm Shane Matthew. As many of the faithful listeners of the podcast may understand, this podcast focuses much of its attention on the best practices within business continuity and the stories of the people behind those programs. But in getting to know practitioners, I begin to learn that while many focus on business continuity, some also wear multiple hats, including that of the company crisis manager. Now, these individuals sometimes have the misfortune of dealing with situations that many of us have never experienced as a crisis manager. So in this two-part series on the podcast, we're going to hear from both a crisis manager and also the victim of a crisis event. Both of these individuals experienced the same situation, a kidnap and ransom event, but in some very unique ways. Our victim obviously going through the ordeal of being held hostage and a great deal of uncertainty, as well as our crisis manager, who's trying to navigate a difficult circumstance without any formal training, background, or experience in having one of their company's employees go through this type of ordeal. In both of these perspectives, they learned powerful lessons about personal and professional crisis response that are incredibly insightful. Remember that this and all our episodes are meant to improve both our professional understanding and growth, so please take a moment to share this episode with your friends and colleagues. All right, let's get on with part one. In February 2013, Cyril Moulin-Fournier went to visit his brother, an expand employee of a French gas company which was located in Cameroon. Cyril, his brother and sister-in-law, along with the couple's four children, aged between 4 and 12, planned a holiday near the Waza National Park in the far northern part of Cameroon. But as they traveled to visit the park, they were seized by men on motorbikes armed with Kalashnikov rifles. The gunmen claimed to be from the Nigerian radical Islamist militant group Boko Haram, and they took them hostage into nearby Nigeria, where they threatened to kill them if authorities in Nigeria and Cameroon did not release Muslim militants held there. Over the next two months, Cyril and his family were held hostage in horrible conditions, moved around to different outdoor camps, and were under constant threat of violence. And as we hear from Cyril's story, there are many lessons he learned along the way like the acceptance of the new normal of a crisis, the need to develop an anchor to cope with the situation, and that returning to freedom had its own powerful ramifications. All right, Cyril, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Shane. Well, you know, you're on the show today because you have such an amazing story. Um, it's not one that I ever wish anyone to go through, but, uh, you know, you've learned so many things from it. And I, th I think it's so vital for crisis managers and business continuity professionals to really understand uh, that these circumstances are real and they impact uh, people uh, many times more than we'd like. Uh, but it's important for us to understand them. So I'm, I'm so thankful for you to join the show. Would you, would you help us understand your background and, and how your professional life, um, you know, was before, you know, the start of this incident? Okay. So my, my background, uh, I, um, I did um, a degree in, uh, in law in France, so I'm French, uh, and um, a master in uh, international trade in uh, business school. 
Um, at that time, uh, when this event did happen, uh, I was working for a big uh, IT company, a big corp in the IT industry, and I was working in uh, um, quality. So my my job was to um, get rid or try to minimize risk uh, for a, a post sales division uh, in in Europe. Yeah. So all right. So you know, tell us a little bit about the the, the situation. You know, how how where were you um, when this all happened? You, you this was not work directly related. Um, this was a vacation. From my understanding. So let me um, define a little bit the context. Um, one of my brother was working uh, at that time uh, for a, a company as an expat in uh, in Cameroon, and um, we well, invited me, you know, like to spend uh, like 12, 13 days uh, of uh, a vacation. My goal was to uh, to um, travel to Cameroon. And uh, uh, the trip was uh, a road trip in the northern Cameroon, um, well known for uh, its uh, national park. So visiting animals, you know, like a safari, more or less. So, so during, um, during um, um, five days before the, the kidnapping happened, we were visiting uh, Cameroon, beautiful countries, um, I have to say we we had or my brother uh, organized this trip pretty well. You know, I organized this trip on my side. We knew where we were going. My brother had some maps. Uh, we had uh, our car. So it was a, a trip really well planned. Obviously, you are in Africa, and uh, um, and that morning of that day when everything uh, happened. Uh, our, our goal was to uh, visit a national park. We were in a hotel um, in northern Cameroon. Our goal was to do a one-day trip to visit a park and to see some elephants. So we left the hotel so together with my brother, his wife, and their four boys, aged uh, at that time, uh, five, seven, nine, and 11 years old, we took the car and we drove uh, in the direction of this park, more or less one hour driving in a national road, pretty, you know, standard. I remember that um, in the morning when I left my room, I remember the moment where after sleeping in a king-size bed, with my full intimacy, having a really nice shower. Um, I packed, I took my backpack, I put in this backpack, you know, all what we need for a one day uh, trip. So meaning sun cream, um, wallets, uh, camera, so all the resources we need. And uh, I still record that moment when uh, I put the key, I locked the door and the outside, it was a beautiful sunrise, you can imagine, sunrise like out of Africa. I was imagining the animals. I was seeing far away um, a lake. That day, I was really in the paradise, you know, like uh, everything was pretty, was pretty, uh, was amazing, beautiful. And driving in the direction of this park, uh, 
after one hour more or less, suddenly, and I say suddenly because that's really interesting, we saw in front of us while we were driving the car, 10 guys, uh, gunmen, uh, blocking the road with heavily weapons, preventing us from moving forward. So in that moment, I remember that moment when uh, obviously there was a shock. None of us were able to see those, these events or those guys appearing. So that was really sudden and suspected. And um, no cries. My nephew were not crying. There was a shock. I remember the first sentence to ask to those guys, what did they want? And they say, well, we are from, we are from Nigeria. And we realized that um, they were, you know, like uh, what usually we call it in Africa, uh, um, road cutters, you know, like uh, gangsters, uh, bandits. But what was really... Uh, shocking is that in that moment, in this road, this national one road from Waza to, uh, to Kalamalue to, to that park, uh, we thought that those guys wanted to take our belongings. We said, okay, they're going to take our car, they want money. Okay, in the worst case, we will have no cars, we will have to, uh, to walk and to go to the closest police station. And the thing is, when those guys told us to go all seven at the back of the car, and the two guys, heavily weapon, drove and started to control the car, we realized those guys didn't want our money. They wanted us. Wow. So do you feel like they targeted you specifically? They knew you were coming that way? Or was this a happenstance, the first people that they found that they were wanting to take. So it's, a, it's funny because when such event happens, usually there are all sort of questions to say, okay, was it targeted? It was a lot of mix of hazard, you know, that uh, um, coincidence, uh, kidnapping by opportunity, I've been told. It was not really um, a plan. Uh, well, Obviously, tenga men with motorbikes uh, are like or require a little bit of logistic, but there was there was no um, as far as I remember there was no uh, uh, plan or something planned on their side. It was much more like an opportunity. To be honest, we were on the wrong place at the wrong time. Wow, that that gives me chills to think about that. You know, to to hear you hear you say that because anyone could have experienced that same thing. It, it's it's um, it's it's terrifying to think about, especially with the children in the car with you. So as you're being uh, taken away, have are they communicating with you and and giving you some indication as to what's coming next or what uh, what their plan is? 
So, so the thing in that case is that obviously uh, the guys were from Nigeria, so, so most of them were speaking in English, but there is no, uh, not a lot of communication. It's, being, it's really violence. I remember that moment where in the car, uh, close to me, really close to me, like uh, nearby, there was a guy, a man with a Kashnikov. It was the first time I was seeing so close a uh, weapon such as uh, Kalashnikov. And the guy, the guy are really nervous. And uh, after taking control of the car, they start to drive and we go. Really, I remember that moment really fast, but we don't know where we are going. And the guy are not talking at all. You know, when did you realize this was officially a kidnapping or uh, an event that you would be there for much longer than just a simple a robbery? It went by phases. I would say first is that the first shock of the first phase is to realize, okay, those guys are controlling. So I lost control. We lost control of our car. We are stuck. Those guys are driving and we don't know where they're going. That's the first phase. Second phase, after driving for one hour, we, we did not get our clock. So the only reference for me was the, the sun. But after more or less one hour, uh, we ended up in a, in, a, in a place where suddenly the guy mentioned they were coming from Al-Qaeda in Nigeria. You know, it's really interesting because I always mention that when we enter into a crisis environment, we need buzzwords, or we need keywords that enable us to understand the reality has changed. And when I heard uh, Al-Qaeda in Nigeria, I repeated to myself, A-L-Q-A-E-D, or no, and, and directly connected to, uh, with the picture of September 11. Oh, the wow. two airplanes crashing, uh, the people running. So, and here in the second phase, I realized, oh, those guys are not like um, road cutters. Uh, they are real, they are real terrorists. So that was the second phase. Third phase regarding the length and that the crisis uh, or the captivity would take much more longer than a, a few days was after a week when suddenly you enter into um, an environment when you realize that you lost control but that the notion of time is something really really outside of your control so meaning that you think that things are going to get solved, and that's more or less one week, but suddenly you realize that things can take much more longer. And uh, at that moment, I realized it was much more complex than a short-time crisis. I mean, these are obviously parallels to what many are experiencing with covid uh, you know, it's such a dramatically long event, and many people are probably experiencing something similar to what you started to feel at that length. Do you do you see that in others, and in, in this experience with COVID that we're all having? Yes, and uh, and um, uh, at the beginning of the of the lockdown, 
I remember that when uh, authorities in many countries started to announce um, uh, quarantine for like two weeks, I wrote down a, an article in Medium to say, guys, don't bet any end date for crisis. You may get disappointed. Wow. Yeah. Because, because yeah. the danger is that, um, is that you started... And that's related for me with control. We want to control. And we want to control a crisis. So therefore, it's, uh, um, it's normal for individuals, for people, for organization to try to say, okay, in two weeks, it's okay. We come back to normality. But crisis can be much more complex and longer. I'm sorry. It, it's just I'm paused here because you are saying some things that are really resonating with me specifically. Um, you know, as, as as someone who's not been through a crisis of your magnitude that you've experienced, but I can sense in this event that we're all going through with COVID, some of us, including myself, have felt that way. Oh, you know, it's just a matter of a few days or a few weeks, and we'll get through this, and it'll be fine. We'll go back to normal, just as you stated, but. Yeah, this is this is amazing. So as you're going through this circumstance, going back to your your story, you know, you you're passing time. Time is passing. It, ultimately, how many weeks or months were you in this situation in captivity? So so in total we were for 2 months, so like 60 days. But what is uh, important for uh, the audience is that we have been through two crises. First, we were in a space, um, in a tiny space for 20 days. And after 20 days, one day our captives came and they said, hey guys, the crisis is over. Well, they were not talking obviously of crisis, but it's tonight you leave the camp and tomorrow you get released. And that moment was really strange because mm, Freedom was a given for me. So I knew what was kidnapping, but I did not experience, I had no clue how would it be getting released and recover freedom. And after a big, big journey, <clears throat> leaving the camp, leaving our resources, leaving the structure we put in place during 20 days, we moved, separated, that was really complex, uh, hoping for the light of the release. And after 15 hours, we realized the guy lied us and we are to start a new crisis. What do you mean by that? Do you mean they just took you to a new location? and A new, new location, a new group of captors, nothing to do with the previous one. New environment, we were uh, up north um, of Nigeria, um, close to Lake Chad, and no resources, almost no resources, because when we left the camp, we were told to live with us our few resources we had at that time. So we had to start from scratch again with a level of mistrust, Shana, as you can imagine, really, really low. 
So could you go back just one step and tell us what was the first location like in terms of general resources, as you mentioned, you know, did you have a place to sleep or, or was there a shelter or was this out in the open? Okay, so the, the, the environment of the first captivity was um, sort of tents, but really basic tents, you know, with um, uh, a tiny space, more or less 15 square, square meters. Uh, no way to uh, stand up, so we had to, uh, to kneel down the whole day, seven, so together, all together, Extreme condition because at that time uh, Africa we were into the dry season, so more like seven thirty eight in the morning it's almost like thirty five forty degrees, and the only moment where we were uh, authorized to get out were um, to brush our teeth and for basic needs. So more or less two time a day with a guy, obviously, uh, a gay man uh, close to us controlling us. The rest was a lockdown, but really uh, extreme lockdown um, in a tiny space uh, with obviously almost no resources. So we, we had no water. So we, do, we had to negotiate on a daily basis a bottle of water, obviously. We are in northern Nigeria, and I can tell you that the logistics for those guys to pick up and to buy some bottle of waters and to bring it safe, it's complex. So, so um, food, basic food, rice, uh, cans of sardines. Obviously, we, we were lucky because we got protein with the oil of the can of sardines. And, and that's it. Did you, during the circumstances, did you have any clue or thoughts around how uh, the governmental authorities were in the loop and, and potentially trying to save or, or rescue you? Like, did you have any clue that negotiations were, were happening at all? Shana, you, you, you and the audience um, need to understand that when we start this captivity, you are into a blackout total. So meaning you're in a space when, well, captors do have radios. Uh, the day after the kidnapping, the only day I heard at the radio, uh, our names and the information that the police was looking for the captors of our family, I can tell you that is so strange sensation to hear your surname and to get stuck into that new normality. That was the only day. The rest is radio that those guys are listening are in Kanuri, so in the local language. So my skill in Kanuri was not good enough. Obviously, it was not at all. So no way to, uh, to control. And the only information we got are the information that the captors are sharing with us. Obviously, we don't know what is true or what is uh, fake or false. No way to understand what's going on. And that's, that's the major uh, element of this captivity, that suddenly you move 
to an environment, especially nowadays where digital, you get everything connected. And suddenly the only connection that works is the connection with who you are and the connection with the team or the others. Yeah. That's powerful. So I'm assuming, you know, during this time, there was probably considerable doubt that uh, you might have felt that things were going to resolve well. How, how did you cope during that time? Did you feel like your connection with your brother and the family was helpful, or did you have to rely on your own um, ability to, to, to motivate yourself or give yourself hope? How, how did you go through that? So it's a, it's a very good question, Shane. For me, the major thing is uh, that day when the kidnapping happens, uh, after very um, complex journey, after um, um, uh, different move from cars to motorbike, to arrive to that tiny space I previously described, uh, I remember the moment where together, the seven of us, we end up, we do, we do have only um, three blankets, we are seven, and we created a sort of spring roll with the three blankets simply because we do have only those three resources. And that moment start the key question to say, okay, tomorrow we need to start a new normality Especially, we need to give our strengths or to put a structure in order to protect the weakest, the kids. So what I, what I mentioned is that day, I realized, we realized that what I call the anchor, the element of stability when everything around you has been um, broken, the anchor, is going to be our unity. That's the first point. The second point is obviously the day after and day after day, we started, I started to give my strengths to defend that unity. So put a structure, create rituals, uh, create some games, and each of us starting to bring our strengths to protect our unity as a key anchor into this new normality. Um, so, you know, let's let's move forward in, in the story. As you've now been through this for obviously several weeks and uh, there is not much information coming to you, you know, at what point did you realize, okay, things are going to get better? You're, you're, you're potentially going to be freed at this point. How did that come about? So time passed by. At the beginning, we start, I, I, as, a, as working in quality, I started to, to uh, think about uh, positive signals and to observe in the new environment to try to identify positive signals. The, the moment where we imagine a positive solution to the crisis are after 20 days when suddenly uh, we got told uh, more or less after the last prayer, so more or less at, uh, at uh, 5.30 uh, p.m., 
that we need to leave the camp. One of our captors came and I said, guys, tomorrow uh, you get free. You get released. So it's a mixed feeling because on one side, you suddenly hear what you have been expecting for a long time. Release. End of a crisis. Solution. On the other side, it's scary. Because after 20 days, we managed to create a structure with process, with rituals, with rules. Each of us bringing the best of our strengths to protect our anchor. And suddenly that day we need to leave everything. And again is what will happen. Uncertainty. No clue. Finally, you're being released officially. Yeah. Yeah. What was that what was that day like? Well, that day like first is when some people lie you uh, lie you um in the life one you you're a little bit like uh, you skeptical, right? First. Second thing um I need to say that the release is as violent as the kidnapping. Because in the lapse of seconds you're moving from an environment where you became survival. You get, again, a structure, but you're leaving a world made of wars, of dust, of uncertainty, almost touching death, sickness, and suddenly you get released and you arrive in the living room of an embassy where a very nice waiter is asking you, which kind of free juice do you want? And I remember that moment when suddenly I said, this is the new normality. This is, obviously for me, everything is different. Talking about a choice uh, between two uh, fruit juices is the new normality. And that's why I, I have to say there is such a violence of that move back to what was normal before the first crisis. But obviously the way I see this new normality is totally different. That's a valuable lesson to learn. I mean, yeah, it, it, it was obviously in the best intentions to provide you with these uh, services or, or to take care of you, right? But yeah, it, it would be definitely abrupt after going through such trauma and seeing, again, another trauma, people don't perceive it that way. So that's very valuable information. Yeah, and I think it's, a, it's funny because that day and after arriving to, uh, to my country, to France, a lot of people, uh, friends, relatives, were say, oh, we are really happy. That's finished. That's over. Um, and I remember one day um, a friend of my parents uh, telling me, looking at me and saying, mm, I hope you're going to come back to normality ASAP. And I stared at him and I said, first, why come back? That's for me the, the interesting uh, element of a crisis. That crisis for me means that coming back to the previous state is almost impossible. And we need to adjust, to keep, to remove, and to add. And the second is, I don't know what is normality, 
Can you explain me what is normality? Because that reality that is normal for you is not anymore normal for me. Yeah, you're right. Many times we as crisis managers, as business continuity managers, we tend to think, you know, recovery or restoration is just a, a finite point in time. And then is everything is back to the original capability. But in fact, it may not be. So, you know, as you came back to, to uh, you know, your, your old life, albeit completely different person, potentially in uh, reflecting in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> Slightly different. <laughs> you know, so tell me about that experience. You know, the, the businesses were, were, were happily accepting of your time frame that you needed to come back on, but you've, was it you that wanted to come back to work in the old setting or did, did you, did you, did you ask for that or was that just a, at a certain time you felt, yeah, I need to get back to the job? Well, so, so the, after more or less uh, one, one month and a half in France, um, having a lot of checkup on uh, um, healthcare standpoint uh, with um, national security services, I, I ended up in the country I was living uh, in Spain. Uh, what is important is after such a crisis, like two months of captivity, um, you end up into your place, you need to be into action. I remember the moment where I realized that even going back to work without working officially at the beginning um, was uh, so important because otherwise your brain and the change that in that case I've been through was so drastic that you need to be into a structure. So you need to get your structure. You need to get a frame that enables you to act. Obviously, you, you have a space for thinking what I would like to do in the future, but you need to come back to work because that's so important to be into a basic action to do your work, to wake up in the morning, to take uh, your underground, to get shaved, to talk to people and socialize again with friends, colleagues, that's crucial. Yeah, it's almost like you're, you're the same approach you took to, to addressing the crisis where you're finding an anchor and finding a, a, a rituals, you know, was very vitally important. And, uh, and that's interesting because you mentioned business continuity. That's continuity, meaning that during captivity, we manage, we structure, we action. And back to normality after the end of the crisis, we need to continue with action, structure, and a space isolated to think a little bit forward how to, to, uh, to move forward with this experience uh, that has changed a lot, that has acted as a catalyst, but how to connect the different pieces of the puzzle and to move forward. So with the, the office environment, uh, you know, was that a challenge for you at times with people uh, around you? Did, did you present any issues with people wanting to, to console you or, or provide you, you know, find out more about what happened? Or did you feel... 
Uh, isolated? What, what was it like? So, so it's. Uh, I like to say I never experienced uh, this um, this event uh, ever in my life. So I had to to uh, create my own process, right? And that's a, that's a really important that um, for crisis management, especially into this recovery after the crisis, end up uh, there is no single process. Every person uh, needs are different depending who they are, who they were before. So I have to say that my company um, had uh, a lot of things prepared, like uh, explaining to the rest of my colleagues um, the situation, trying to not educate, but to explain how would be um, my return to the company. uh, spaces for confidentiality with different kinds of people. So it, there was a structure that was um, that was really important to uh, keep me safe into uh, the new normality. And also a second part that was really important, I had a single point of contact um, in my company who was in charge to talk with different people, different functions, because because they were like HR, they were like uh, direct hierarchy, other people involved. And that single point of contact was for me as a user uh, experience, uh, for me was a key factor. Yeah, no, definitely like a liaison almost uh, to help, exactly. you know, facilitate yeah. your reentry. Yeah. And that's, that's vitally important. So, you know, looking back now, um, is there any, is there any other lessons that you've, you've thought, hey, you know, for crisis managers, business continuity professionals, people who are in this field, that your experience really, kind of, you know, makes you think. I, I hope they will understand this aspect of my circumstance. Well, first, I would say that that's maybe a basic statement, is that. Um, we are not the crisis we're facing, but we are the way and the choices we make to face those crises. So I discovered the power, the, the, how critical is um, people development, understand who uh, people are, to understand the way they can face with crisis. So meaning that I'm sure that different person in the same environment can have a drastic way to experience the crisis, but right. the aftermath and the recovery or the, the coming back to the new uh, normality. That's the first point. Second point is um, it's interesting uh, to get that um every crisis can be different but the crisis I, i'm going to give you an image a crisis can be like a tsunami okay like a big wave unsuspected really powerful that disrupt everything that's the impact of the wave well or the wave arriving but for me where i experience in my process, in the complex process after this crisis happened, was how this wave, how this captivity impacted my entry values, my life 
my priorities. And that, that's for me an important point that when a lot of people think that they may be an end up uh, date of the crisis, okay, after one year, it's okay. The process is much more complex and longer. And the number of people impacted by the crisis are not only the user directly impacted, in that case, me, my brother, uh, wife, and the kids, but my brother who was in France at that time, my parents. So all the people surrounded mm -hmm. circle of family that usually, I'm going to say, are a little bit put aside. They need to get strong. I remember that my brother mentioned that the power he used to try to understand the situation, to understand the environment, to get the information from national authorities. And the support um, that somehow tend to be a little bit scarce. We tend to forget those people. That would be, for me, the major learnings of, uh, of what I've been through, uh, Shane. Right. So before I conclude, I just want to take a side note to ask, Cyril, do you have, uh, are you releasing your story in some way? Is that going to be through a book or through some sort of other method? Or are you doing something like that? Yeah, so two, two elements, I would say on one side, um, I've been um, uh, doing as a keynote speaker conferences. Um, and uh, I, I um, so I do have my webpage, uh, connect. Uh, dash create dot net and second I've been writing a book for six years I hope to release and to uh, publish really soon so I will let you know the book title um, is Alive at Last because that's uh, at the end is how captivity uh, that for a lot of people uh, could be a space where everything gets stopped it's a space when I discover real freedom, despite the fact to uh, not be free physically. Cyril, thank you so much for you know, sharing your story. It is obviously one that uh, is filled with so much emotion and importance from the lessons you've learned. And I really appreciate you sharing this with our audience today. A pleasure. It has been a pleasure, Shane. Thanks for joining us this week on the Fatal Level Plan podcast. On the next episode, we'll be talking with the principal regional security and crisis response team member from Cyril's company that worked behind the scenes to monitor the situation during the kidnapping. We'll get to hear more about their perspective as they prepared for his return home and the efforts they took to bring Cyril back into the office. You can find more about Cyril Malone Fournier by visiting our website, failoverpodcast.com. There you'll find several links that he wanted to share with our listeners. Thanks for listening, and remember, why learn how to do something on your own when there's got to be someone else who may have already learned this the hard way?